glad to have you here. And uh, I have enjoyed, I've waited, I think, over 15 years to teach on Elijah. I had collected a, a series of books and anticipated doing this. What I did not anticipate was, you know, I thought, okay, it's biographical study. It's like studying Peter or Paul. You just go through the life. It's fun. You get to tell the story. I never in a million years thought there would be so many difficult passages. There's so many uh, unknowns, really, about Elijah's life. We're kind of told the story, and then commentators go off in this direction, that direction, this direction, and create whole scenarios. We saw that with Obadiah. Boy, some of them really beat up on Obadiah. You know, he's a, uh, he's a compromiser. Others saw him as a hero of the faith. Well, we're now moving into a portion of uh, uh, 1 Kings 19 uh, in the story of Elijah that peop- uh, Bible students and, and commentary, they have all sorts of ideas of what's going on here. And so this it's been challenging, but it's been refreshing. In fact, Katie's sister is like on Mount Carmel right now, praying fire down. Isn't that amazing? She just showed me a picture of her sister right now is there on Mount Carmel. You can actually go there. How amazing. But for some reason, she then ate McDonald's instead of like Middle Eastern food. So I, I don't know. But, you know, she got to go there. I, I haven't been. Well... Let's look at 1 Kings 19. Where we're at in the story is at what happens after Mount Carmel. You know, we, we left Elijah. We stopped and looked at his prayer life. We left Elijah singing, I've seen fire and I've, I've seen rain there on Mount Carmel. So what happens after that? Well, I want to say or suggest to you that if, it, if, if Elijah's life was made into a Netflix original, and we called it Firekeeper. Here's how maybe chapter 19 would play out. After you had these awesome special effects of fire falling from heaven on Mount Carmel, and you had this bloody battle scene of the 450 prophets of Baal being slayed by the sword by the Wadi Kishon, Elijah would run through the gates of Jezreel, triumphantly, like a marathon runner entering into an Olympic stadium, to the cheering throngs of the Israelites, and the crowd would go wild. And as he's being cheered, in would come the chariot of Ahab, and Ahab would come in and jump off of his chariot, run over to Elijah, and high-five him, uh, here's his former enemy, now his friend. He would high-five. They would now be fellow servants of Yahweh. They would form a band of brothers. They would be the new avengers for Yahweh. They would be the fellowship of the king. And Ahab would run up into the palace and run and find Jezebel, his wife, and give her an ultimatum. Either you repent and follow Yahweh, or you will be killed. She would repent, revival would come, and everybody would be happy. Or it might be the director's cut, and Ahab would simply rush into Jezebel's presence and cut off her head, just like they had done the prophets of Baal. any case, in this Netflix original Baal worship would be banished from the land. Ahab would lead Samaria to reunite with Judah. The twelve tribes would be reunited under a loyal Davidic king. 
in worshiping the one true God, and the movie would fade out like the like the return of the king. Everybody would be shouting, celebrating. Uh, flower petals would be falling in the air, and everybody would be saying, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Well, that's the way we'd like the story to end, right? That's how we like our stories to end. And I would put forth to you, that's the way Elijah expected the aftermath of Mount Carmel to end. But God is sovereign, and He writes His story. He writes history. Hearts are hard. And it's not merely the mighty works, seeing the mighty works of God, fire falling, rain coming at the prayer of one man after three and a half years. It's not merely the mighty works of God that change hearts. It's the mighty word of God and God's sovereign grace working on hard hearts that changes lives. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. 1 Kings 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18, focusing today specifically on the first four verses. But to get a little context, let's go back to chapter 18, verse 44. So look there in your Bibles, follow along as I read. It came about at the seventh time that he, Elijah, who is on Mount Carmel, said, Behold, actually it's his servant, said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Now it's Elijah to his servant, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. So it came about in a little while that the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. And now is where his expectations are high. What happens? Chapter 19, verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Immediately, you see, this is a slanted report. I mean, of all the things that happened, he told all things, but what did he emphasize? What did he emphasize? The killing of the prophets. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So we've seen Ahab speaking to Jezebel. We're seeing Jezebel speaking to Elijah through a messenger. And here's his response. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, or often called a broom bush, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Literally in the Hebrew, enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. 
he lay down and slept under the juniper tree. Wow. Okay, that's totally unexpected. So let's take a look at this. What happens when enough is enough? What happens when God's servant has had it up to here and says, it's enough. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm quitting. I'm going AWOL. I can't take it anymore. What happens when enough is enough? We're going to look at four key characters. We're getting just a basic overview, and then we'll go in in a little more detail next week. Let's look at it. First of all, what happens? Ahab, the apostate king, fails to lead. Ahab, the apostate king, fails to lead, and he reports passively. He doesn't take leadership. He just reports as it happened. Slanted though it may be, he is passively reporting. Now look again at verse 1. He, Ahab here is just, he's, not lead, he's a weak man who followed whoever was leading at the moment. If he's on Mount Carmel and Elijah's in charge, well, whatever you say. Because remember, we saw whatever Elijah did, there were no words from uh, Ahab. He simply did what he was told. You know why? Because that's how his whole life was. Whoever was large and in charge, whatever they said, he did. He was a passive, weak man. And he was a double-minded man hesitating between two opinions. Remember when on Mount Carmel that uh, Elijah accused Israel, you're limping between two opinions. You know, if, if Yahweh seems attractive, you're over here. If Baal is attractive, then you're limping towards him. Well, this is what Ahab's doing. He saw, and, and, and we, we're not sure if he participated, but he saw everything on Mount Carmel, and he was fine with it. He wasn't protesting, he wasn't risking his life. And so he's a double-minded man, but in the, at the end of the day, Ahab is still an apostate. He's seen the fire, he's seen the rain, and he takes no stand. Although he had witnessed God's power in the famine of three and a half years. He had witnessed God's power in the fire falling. He had witnessed God's power in the rain coming in answer to the prayers of God's prophet before the imposing presence of his wicked wife. He's just a limp noodle. He's just a weak man. And that's a reminder to us that it's not the mighty works of God that changes people. It's the mighty Word of God. Okay, remember Lazarus and the rich man? And the rich man in hell was saying, Hey, if, if you would just send Lazarus back to my living brothers, if they heard from one who had returned from the dead, then they would change their hearts. And Abraham said to him, No, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Word of God. And if the Word of God doesn't change their heart, even one rising from the dead, pointing forward, Jesus there to himself. And that's what you have here. You see, often I remember witnessing to some of my co-workers at the movie theater when I was a teenager. Well, if God wants me to be saved so badly, Chris, why doesn't he write it in the sky? And this was my buddy Jeff. Uh, Dope-smoking, smart, intelligent Jeff. Why doesn't he write it in the sky? Well, here's the answer. Because even if he did, your heart wouldn't change. Because the Word of God has already told you how to be saved, and you're rejecting it. 
And so he passively reports. And notice, he reports all that who did. What, who, does he, who does he focus on in his report? All that, all that Elijah had done. But who was the one at work on Mount Carmel? It was Yahweh. So see, he, he's presenting it. This is what Elijah did, and this is what Elijah did. But what you really need to realize, Jezebel, is this is what he did to your prophets. That troubler of Israel is at it again. So these are the words of Ahab to Jezebel. How will she react? Well, let's look at it. Number two, Jezebel, the pagan queen, refuses to repent. She reacts aggressively. He reports passively. She reacts aggressively. He fails to lead. She refuses to repent. Are you with me? Look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, now she swears an oath. And one thing I'm picking up as we work through 1 Kings is swearing oaths to God or gods are very important. Okay, they put you on record. And so notice what she says. So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. See, what emphasized, what hit her about the report was the slaying of the, her prophets because they were her means of taking over Israel for Baal worship. And so she says to Elijah, look, I'm going to do you what you have done to them. Within 24 hours. Now, here's the classic hero versus villain. Elijah finally has met someone with as much zeal and jealousy for their God as he has for his God. Israel halting between two opinions. Ahab, a weak noodle, a limp noodle, they'll go any direction you push him. Finally, now, Elijah's got someone who's as passionate about their beliefs as he is. Or at least he thinks he is. In fact, some uh, different versions of the Bible have in this verse, verse 2 begins like this, If you are Elijah, I am Jezebel. If you are Elijah, I am Jezebel. Now that's not originally a part of the text, but it captures the mood of the moment. In other words, <coughs> Elijah, your name means Yahweh is my God. Well, guess what? My name means Baal is my prince. So let's go at it, okay? So it's like the clash of the titans. And, and basically, what Jezebel is saying through the messenger is, game on. I'm down for this, okay? You, I'll show you who's really in charge. You may have been the boss, Mr. Man, up on Mount Carmel, but I'm the woman down here in Samaria. You haven't seen anything yet. So, if Ahab was a weak man, Jezebel was a wicked woman. If he was passive, she was aggressive. But notice, in her response, there's no concern for God's people, who, by the way, have been dying of dehydration and starvation. Now the rains have come. She's not rejoicing in God's blessings, and she has no concerns for Yahweh. Her concern is about her wicked ways. Now, notice... Think about again, what has happened? Fire has fallen, which was judgment. 
Rain has fallen, which is salvation and blessing. So cursing and judgment has taken place. And yet, so far, we've seen three responses to God's working of judgment and salvation. We've seen repentance in the people of Israel, right? Yahweh is my God. We've, and they fell, fell on their faces. We've seen indifference in Ahab. He's like, yeah, what, so what, whatever. Comes back, reports, unchanged. And now we're seeing hostility. And when you go to the book of Acts and you see God doing works through the church, you see these same three responses. People are either repenting, believing, or they are indifferent. Eh, Yeah, we'll listen some more. Or they are hostile. Very interesting. As one commentator put it this way, over against the Lord, by whom she knew she was being addressed, her hatred flared up. That hatred was her answer to the revelation of the Lord and was a fruit of that revelation. His revelation made the hatred manifest and it also hardened her refusal to repent. The law of hardening was at work here. Instead of softening her heart. It's like the sun. The sun can either melt something or harden something. It depends on the substance on which it shines. And God's Word and God's work can either soften hearts or it will harden hearts. Are you with me? And that's why we pray for His grace to soften hearts. So, the Lord and His prophet have reversed her efforts to wipe out true worship. So what does she do? Let's Let's break down what she does. First of all, she sends a messenger. She sends a messenger. Basically... Jezebel has set herself up like a goddess. She's a goddess up in her temple palace, and she sends her her messenger like a prophet to say, I am about to do to you and more. You know, I'm going to do to you. And, and so she's just really, she's just large and in charge, right? Not phased in the least that she's dealing with a prophet who represents a God that can bring fire from heaven and rain off and on like you turned your shower on this morning. So she sends a messenger. Number two, she swears an oath. She swears an oath, and this is important in kings. So let's take a look at it. Let's break this oath down and just see what she's doing. So here's what she says. She swears an oath. So may the gods do to me. And she says, plural, gods do to me. So what, what do we see in this oath? She swears in defiance of Yahweh. She swears in defiance of the one true God who has just revealed himself miraculously and swears in the name of her gods Baal and and all, all all these crazy gods. Number two, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them, she swears an oath to kill Elijah. If I don't make your life... And remember, in the story of Elijah, life and death. Life and death. So once again, Elijah has been at the point of death throughout this story, right? At the brook Cherith, he's dependent on ravens, and the water dries up. But God took care of him. With the widow, God says, Oh, here's how I'm going to provide for you. By a starving, Baal-worshipping widow. That's okay, God. You said it. I'll go do it. Takes care of him. The jug and the jar never are depleted. 
He has been on the edge of death. In fact, one under his care, the little boy, dies. That's okay. I'll just pray. God will raise him from the dead. This guy has faced life and death. And here, once again, he's facing another life and death situation where the wicked queen, who is really the neck that turns the head of the king, who is in charge, says, Look, I'm going to make your life like their lives. I'm going to extinguish it. Okay? Third. And here's how you swear an oath. May the gods do to me and even more. So she swears an oath at the risk of her own life. At the risk of her own life. In other words, if I don't do this to you, may the gods do that to me and more. And guess what? Even though he, she was swearing to false gods, the one true God heard her, took her up on her oath, and we're going to see later in the story... She actually does die worse death than being your head cuts off. She's thrown out a window. Her blood splatters on the wall. The crazy dogs in the area all swoop in, chew her up to the point that all that's left is her skull, her, her hands, and her feet. I guess they didn't want the little bones. They took the big ones, ran off, and the scriptures even say, thus... You, if you would look for uh, Jezebel after her death, she was the dung in the field coming out of the backside of them dogs. You can't, in that Middle Eastern cult culture, to die, to be unburied, to be eaten by dogs, filthy dogs, and then to be excreted out the backside. This is it. Yeah. She said, may the gods do to me and even more so. And God took her up. Fourth, by this time tomorrow, she swore an oath with a deadline. By this time tomorrow. Now remember, Elijah's at the gate. Elijah's at the gate of the, of the city, and she says, go down there, go to the city gate and tell him, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to have you killed. Now that raises some questions. And that's why we have all these weird questions I'm learning in the life of Elijah. Why does she send a messenger instead of an executioner? Right? And why does she wait 24 hours instead of immediately saying, go down there and kill him? This is a big question. I mean, why does he do it? Now, what's the answer? Well, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us why. Now, one answer is that Jezebel didn't want to make Elijah a martyr, okay? The tide has turned against her. If I kill him now, the whole, you know, the whole martyr thing. But I think the better answer is this. In God's providence, God is just sovereign. And this allowed time. Uh, what, what she did, what ended up happening is Elijah escaped. But I think it's just the irrational nature of sin. Think about this. In other words... Some think that Jezebel was a bluffer. She was just bluffing. Hey, you know, I'm going to kill you. And she hopes he'll run away so, he'll pro so her problem will run away. But she wasn't a bluffer. She was a butcher. She had killed every prophet up to this time. And we're going to see in the story of this Naboth who owns a, a little guy who owns a little vineyard she has no problem killing this guy so Ahab can have a vineyard. Okay, this she's a murderer. She's a butcher. She's not a bluffer. What she did was made a blunder. This is what has happened. I, I can't help but think of Hitler. Why did Hitler start a two-front war? 
when everybody knows you do a two-front war on not only that, but attack Russia in winter. Why did he do that? If he had not done that, we'd all be possibly speaking German today. Why did he do that? Well, I think it just comes down to this. Pride's folly, sin's stupidity, and God's sovereignty. She was a manipulator. She was a conniver. She was a strategizer. And she said, let me think on this 24 hours, but I want you on notice. I'm coming after you. So there's Jezebel's words. So we've seen Ahab reports passively. She reacts aggressively. What is Elijah going to do? Well, let's look at verse 3. Elijah, the loyal prophet, flees in fear. He flees in fear. He runs fearfully. This is crazy. I mean, not only had he hoped Ahab would have some manhood and some leadership and some conviction and some conversion, but we aren't expecting Elijah to run? Think about this. That's crazy. At least up until now. See, the problem with us is we know the story too well. So we miss out on the fun of it. So you got to read through it and realize, whoa, I didn't see that coming. So let's look at verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. It's like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, no sooner does the, the, does the messenger come, boom, he was afraid. Boom, he got up. Boom, he ran for his life. And not only did he run for his life, but he's way up here in Samaria in the north, okay? He runs as far south as you can get in the promised land down here to Beersheba, which is literally the most southern part of Judah, the most southern part of the promised land. He ran 100 miles. For you K-State fans, we have any K-State fans here? Yeah, yeah, Manhattan, am I right on my colleges? Wildcats, Wildcats Manhattan? Yeah. yeah, 100 miles. Boom. As far south as he could go. Okay, I don't know what else is 100 miles away, but I know Manhattan was. All right, so here's the story. And I guess you got to get the Wildcats in there or it doesn't count. Well, yeah. Okay, okay, I got you, I got you. Okay, so now here's what we're going to do. We're going to just work our way through this verse. So, we're just going to ask questions. First of all, what are we told in this verse? What is his emotion? It is one of fear. It is fright. Okay? Now, some people want to say he wasn't afraid. Some people want to say that he ran all the way down here, just like he did in 17.2, where he ran to the brook Cherith. The only problem is, who told him to do that in 17.2? The Lord. Hide yourself away. Who told him to do this? Nobody. Nobody. So, there's commentators, there's students. You know, don't tell me. He's like, oh, apparently you are not converting to Yahweh. I will now separate myself from you and allow God's judgment to rest. I will remove myself, the bearer of God's word. That's not what's going on here, okay? And, and so he's afraid. It's fright. And when, with, when you have fright, you have two responses to fright, you, uh, you analysts, you, you psychology people. What are they? 
fright, flight, fright, what? Fight and fright, flight. Okay, this is like Elijah and Elijah. Okay, so we got these two responses, flight or fight. Which one did he choose? Okay, so his emotion, fright. His reaction, run for his life. Fright, flight is what he does, 100 miles. All the way to the very border of not just Samaria, because remember, Samaria is here. This is Judah. He goes to the very border of the promised land in the opposite direction. All right? Now, what's his omission? What's the big omission in this story? Those of you who've been traveling along, whenever we see Elijah moving from one place to another, what always comes before his movement? Do what? Yahweh speaks to him. I hope you know that. The word, every time, basically in every lesson before he moves, it, the passage says, the word of the Lord came to him, and basically he says, go, and he tells him where, and then the text always says, and Elijah got up and went. I mean, that's been the consistent pattern. He never has moved any other time, any other way. All of a sudden here, Fright, flight, and the omission is God has not spoken. So let's break that down a little bit. What's going on here? First of all, there's no word from God and no prayer to God. Do you see that? So again, the commentators, the students, the people who look at this text and say, Ah, oh, you know, we're not being too hard on Elijah here, like some are on Obadiah. We literally have no indication, no reason to think that he's doing anything other than running like a scared rabbit. There is no word from God. There is no prayer to God. He is acting like a practical atheist. And we do the same thing. I want to caution you. I want to exhort you. I want to exhort myself. How often do we make decisions like practical atheists? No word from God to do what we're doing. No prayer to God for wisdom on what we're doing. Think about it. Number two, Elijah has forsaken the pathway of submission. The pathway of submission. Now, I'm not going to teach you that all over again, but if you've been with us in this series, the beauty of studying through the Bible uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter and going through the story expository teaching is that you begin to see patterns. And we've seen this pathway of submission where they receive the word, they obey the word, they abide in the word, they pray the word, and they adore the Lord of the word. You're not seeing this happening. You're not seeing this happening. That's a danger sign. Number three, the faith of the firekeeper is about to go out. I mean, here, here we just got done spending two weeks talking about the firekeeper of the lodge house. Be like Elijah. And we should be. And we ought to be. Here's a lesson on how not to be like Elijah. This guy's faith is barely a smoldering wick. All right? Now, what's his decision? Here's the fourth question. What's his decision? Or let's say, what's his motivation? It's more than mere fear. It's more than just fatigue. It's more than an emotional letdown after Carmel. This is not simply a case study in general depression. Now we're getting in to a big part. 
Typically on 1 Kings 19, it becomes a study about depression, which is a very real issue, a very real issue for people in ministry, a very real issue for those who are trying to be loyal in times of apostasy. So I'm not diminishing the emotional aspect that we're going to see in his life, but that's not that's not his motivation. His motivation isn't just, wow, Carmel was cool and this is a letdown. Let me run a hundred miles. No, his motivation, his decision is one of disobedience and unbelief. Now, mixed in that is depression. Because guess what? It's kind of the chicken or the egg. Which comes first, disobedience or depression? And is depression always a result of disobedience? I would say no. But does disobedience bring depression? Yes, it can. But the point is, the motivation here is fear, unbelief, And instead of waiting for the word of the Lord and praying to the Lord of the word, he's just taken off. What happens when enough is enough? What happens is it leads to spiritual depression and disobedience. Elijah's not acting with an obedient faith. His decision to run is not like in 17.2 where God says, go hide yourself away. No, he's just running in disobedience. Now, what's his location? To the southernmost border. Okay, I've already covered that. And guess what he does here? At the border of the promised land, he leads his servant. So how would you like to be Yahweh's, you know, or Yahweh's? How would you like to be Elijah's servant through, you know, Car- Mount Carmel? And then he's, he's like, we got to go. We got to run. So they run 100 miles. They come to the border and he says, look, I'm done. We're going to see in a moment. I've had enough. I'm quitting. I'm out of here. Here. I don't need your service anymore because I don't intend to serve the Lord anymore. In fact, I'm hoping I'm not going to live much longer. So he drops him off at the edge of the promised land. Let's go to verse 4. Because Elijah's not done running. Look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree. So where's his location? Two things are significant. First of all, it's in the wilderness. What does that tell us? The wilderness is a place of temptation and testing. Temptation and testing. So he's run on his own. And guess what? When we run from God, like Jonah ran from God, we end up in a wilderness of temptation and testing. Are you following this? And in that wilderness, the only resource he can find, the only comfort he can find is a juniper tree, which is, we saw that in our study of Job, and it's a broom tree. It's very interesting, because here's what the broom tree does. And he, and, and he sat under a single one. So you have this isolated man, scared, disobedient, discouraged, depressed, sitting under a solitary bush. It's really a large bush. And it provides some protection from wind and sun in the desert. And it provides some food and fuel because the roots of this tree would be used for fuel, and you could eat them. So basically, he's like, man, I'm here in the wilderness, and the best I got to take care of me is a broom tree. It's me and my broom tree. And I got a little protection. I got a little provision. Now, has provision been an important theme in this story? And who's always the provider? The Lord through miraculous ways. 
But see, he's running on this. This is his own doing. And so we all he's got is this bush in the desert for some food, for some fuel, and for some protection. So what happens? What's his intention? He sits under the broom tree and has a pity party and prays. Pity party and prayer. That's what his intention is. He has a pity party and he prays. Now, is he going to pray like a fire keeper? No, 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 no. This is, you remember those seven principles that we looked at the last two weeks? None of those principles are being, this is not a fire keeper prayer. What kind of prayer is it? It's a prayer that the flame of his life would be extinguished. Look at the rest of verse 4. And he requested for himself. I would be circling those words. Who's he focused on? Self. Not God. Not others. That he might die. And here's his prayer. It's a lament. And here's his prayer. It's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my brothers. And he lays down and he goes to sleep under his broom tree. Okay? What is his lamentation? He laments. This is the type of prayer where you say, Oh, pity me. Okay? So here's his lamentation in the uh, Christian Standard Bible. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Now, here's the key word. I've had enough. In fact, in the Hebrew, the key word is the first word. It's one word, and it's, and it's simply this. Enough. Enough. In other words, he's saying to God in prayer, enough is enough. I'm done. I'm quitting. I've had it up to here with you, with them, with everyone. Enough. Have you ever been there? You ever been there in serving the Lord? As a parent? As a spouse? As a witness at work? As a servant at the church? Enough! Enough! Things aren't going like I expected. Hearts are harder than what I thought. I'm done. Those are dangerous words. Dangerous words. They put you in a dangerous place. A place of temptation and testing. A place of isolation and alone. Let's break that down. Here's his lament. Here's his lamentation. With regard to life, Elijah says, Enough! Regard to life, enough. I'm quitting. I'm done. I've gone long enough in my loyalty. See, he's leaving the... He went... After getting here, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. No people. It's not where God's at work. And it's not where God wanted him to be at work. So what's he doing? He's saying, look, I'm done. I have gone long enough in my loyalty. And guess what? Your people are done, God. They have gone far enough in their disloyalty. It's done. It's done. And that's what happens in times of apostasy. It's going to get darker. I keep telling me that. I keep telling you that. It's going to get darker. It's going to get harder. And you're going to come, and I'm going to come to places where you're going to say, I have gone on long enough in loyalty to you. And others have gone far enough in disloyalty that I'm done. 
with regard to death, Elijah says, now. <laughs> I mean, can't you relate to this, people? Listen to me. Can you not relate? With regard to life, uh, I'm done. With regard to death, now. I want it now. I want out of here. Take my life. I'm the only one who's loyal. I'm the only one who's jealous for the fame of your name. And then number three, with regard to others, Elijah says, I'm no better. With regard to others, I'm no better. And here's the subtlety, is when we compare ourselves to others. So here's the idea. He says, I'm no better than my fathers. We don't know if he's referring to the children of Israel who were uh, died in unbelief and disobedience. We don't know if he's referring to other prophets and kings who tried to bring revival. But here's what we do know. We don't know who he's talking about, but here's what we do know. He thought he was better than them. I thought I could do what others hadn't. You ever thought you could really succeed at something? And then there comes that crashing disappointment when you realize, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And there's despair. There can be discouragement. That's where he's at. That's where he's at. Now, here's how I want to end this. Elijah was a human being just like us. Can you see this? So take comfort in that today. What does this mean? Take comfort that even a man as great as Elijah can fail. Can we hear, oh, good, that means I'm not so bad, right? So take comfort from that. There's hope for all of us. The Lord will meet us in your time of need. But there's a warning, and the warning is that even a man like Elijah can fall. That means we need to all be humble and be prepared and know that we could take this path like he did. All right? So here's what I want to end with. Elijah was a human being just like the us. Can you relate? Too often we expect, expect the Lord to do it our way. We expect the Lord to do it our way. On our timetable. And to do it all through us. And that can bring devastating disappointment, discouragement, depression, but it can also tempt us to disobedience. And we can say, enough. I've had it. So look at that again. Too often we expect the Lord to do it our way, on our timetable, and to do it all through us. So today's lesson Enough is enough. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about times in your life when you've been at this point. I want you to think about how you're thinking about things in your life regarding serving the Lord, things that you're praying for, and think, how am I thinking, God, you have to do it this way? Are you praying, God, you have to do it this way? Now, you would never say that. I understand that. Neither would I. But what's going on in here? Okay. Number two, you got to do it on my timetable. I'll pray for this this long, but if it doesn't happen by this time, I'm going to quit praying. Do we say that? No, but what are we tempted to do? And, God, you got to do it all through me. 
And so, you know, enough is enough. Now, next week, we're going to take it through. I was going to give you an overview. We're not going to do that. But we're going to see, how does God respond to this? So, here, we're, we're leaving Elijah. Where is he going to be all week? Where is Elijah all week? Under a juniper tree, a broom bush, with a little protection, a little provision, with a lament that says, I've lived long enough, and I've had it long enough, and I'm done. And he goes to sleep. Because why? When you've given up, sleep can be your only escape. So listen this week if you can hear Elijah snoring. Because we're going to find, how does God respond to people who have had enough? How does God respond to people who have had enough? Is this, are you going to come back? Okay, I hope you do. I hope you read 1 Kings 19. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though our faith be like a smoldering wick, you do not extinguish it. Though we are a bruised reed that is about to break and bent over by the storms, you do not break us. Lord, we thank you that as the prophet greater than Elijah, you say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and I will give you rest. Father, if we are at that point of enough is enough, may this week we get alone with you and come to you and find rest in you and find comfort in you. And Lord, if we're here right now thinking, what's he talking about? I've got this under control. My life is just humming along. Oh, God. In your grace, humble us to understand that we are no better and no different than Elijah, than Ahab, than Jezebel, unless your grace humbles us and changes our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for being a heart changer, a mercy shower, and a comforter in our time of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's encourage one another this week.